What a great thing it is to know this. We know our condition, don't we? We know who we are and who we were. And we know this, that God's grace is greater than all of our sin and that we have but one plea. We plea the blood of Jesus for our sin and God is gracious and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If you would uh, turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 14, uh, we're going to pick up this morning in verse 8, um, going through verse 18. Uh, we'll first pray, uh, then we will read the passage under examination, then we'll dissect the passage, making observations and applications as we go. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit would speak to us through your holy word this morning. Lord, we come to you this morning to cast down the idols of our heart. Rid us, Lord, of all that we have exalted above you. Give us grace this morning. Illuminate, illuminate the passage for our understanding. We need grace to inflame our hearts and love toward you. Engage our will toward obedient faith, Lord. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you are able, uh, would you please stand for the reading of the infallible, inerrant word of God from Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful season, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I will say that I had a bit of a, of a time wrestling with this passage this week. And how would I uh, look at the context of what was going on at Lystra and say, you know, here is a word of the Lord for us in our context, as well as the context of what was going on there. Uh, so I have wrestled with this, and 
I think I, there, there are many angles and points that one could make as the aim for why Luke included this uh, particular passage. And I'll make some of those, uh, but there is one really big aim, I believe, that we will get at, and that is that the God that we proclaim is the God of the Holy Scripture. And that the God that we proclaim must comport with what the Holy Scripture speaks of Him. And we live in a world where there are many, many gods, lowercase g. Some of them, even you and I, have bowed down before them and worshiped them. We are not all that far different from these who had local deities that they worshiped. So if you and I were traveling today and we went to India and we were walking the streets of New Delhi, there's a God on every corner. In fact, 33 million gods. There are 33 million gods to which your attention, your allegiance, and your worship could be directed. You would also find that in India is one of the spiritually most dark places on earth. Back home here in America, we don't have multiple gods, do we? We don't have gods who are clamoring for our attention, our allegiance, and our worship, do we? It is said that the human heart is a factory of idols. Our hearts manufacture gods. We manufacture gods in our hearts and they cl it clamors for our attention, for our allegiance, and for our worship. Here's just a, a small list. This list could be long, maybe 33 million long. I don't know if you really, if I thought about it long enough. But I thought of just a few of, of the gods that are manufactured by our human heart. Self. Pride. Respect. Lust. Comfort. Distraction. Leisure. Law or legalism. Religion. Bitterness. Fear. Politics. Money. Vocation, social media, status or position, information, sexuality, identity, education, body image, possessions, family, friends, sports, entertainment. See what the Christian church has often done and often still does is synchronize the gods of this age and incorporate them into our worship and into our Christian witness. The Christian church has often tried to marry the world to our practice. You see it when the latest social media trend becomes the trend in worship. The pursuit of a political solution to our spiritual condition sometimes would tell us that the Christian, if he's going to be a good follower of Christ, must adopt the current um, political solution, the current political ideology. We've lifted up ideology of politics 
to become a God, to synchronize it, to place it in uh, cooperation with the worship of holy God. You see, leisure as a God, possessions as a God, vocation as a God, sports and entertainment have become the priority for a Christian such that when they do surveys of what is faithful, what is a faithful Christian in America today? A faithful Christian in America today attends a worship service twice a month. Twice a month. So let's just say that that worship service is an hour and a half long. Three hours a month dedicated to the worship of God. Three hours a month. I think my, my friend uh, Brian often talks about the 1,440 minutes that are in a day. 180 minutes a month dedicated to the worship of God. I would say then, who or what is your God? Who or what really is your God? What God has clamored for your attention? What God have you given your attention, your focus, and your energy to? Well, who's your God? How much of your allegiance does the one true God command? How much of your allegiance does the one true God deserve? I, I posed this question because I, I posed it to myself as I was praying this week, and that's why uh, this morning I wanted to begin with Psalm 96 and thinking about ascribing glory to God, who He is. That ought to be the aim, right? The beginning aim of He is God. He is Lord of lords. He is King of kings, and there is no other. And yet I know that in my flesh, in my heart, it builds up these little factories, this factory of my heart that produces idols, things that take me away from the one true God. Those things that stir up in our heart, those things that are going on, they, sometimes they're, they're, they're good things. Sometimes they're necessary things. But we take good, necessary things and lift them above the worship of God. In our passage today, we're going to see that um, the God that Paul and Barnabas proclaims is the God of the Holy Scripture. The good news that Paul and Barnabas proclaim is that God, the God that is known in all of creation and the God revealed to us in the Scripture is the one true God. The God and only God worthy of our allegiance and our worship. And that our Christian witness to Jesus Christ only carries authority when the Christ we proclaim is the Christ of the Holy Scripture. There are people out there who proclaim Christ who is not very consistent with the Bible. I hear it all the time. I hear it sung on Christian radio, in fact, a lot. I hear this is that people in the church today, a lot of people are in love with a Jesus that they don't even know. They're in love with a Jesus that is inconsistent with what the scriptures teach about who he is and what he's done, the, the, the command and the allegiance that God deserves, they use Christ as just 
I don't know, like a get out of jail free card or something. I, I, I don't know, but it's not the Christ of the Bible. It's not the God according to Scripture. So as we pick up this morning in Acts chapter 14 and verse 8, I want to review just a little bit of context. So Paul and Barnabas having been sent to Antioch, and from there they went to Iconium, and they begin this missionary journey. And most often, they began in the most logical place possible, right? They, they begin in the synagogue where the message might find the most favor. They begin there. In the synagogue, you would have Jews who were familiar, of course, with the Holy Scripture. You would have Gentile converts to Judaism that then in some way they had reverence and allegiance to Yahweh, the God of the Bible. We saw in Antioch and Pisidia, the leadership of the synagogue um, of the Jews, they fully now and completely reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. They made their stance sure. The Jesus that Paul and Barnabas proclaim is according to the official leadership of the Jews. He is not the promised Messiah. He's not the fulfillment of the Old Testament scripture. And so in chapter 13, verse 51, Paul and Barnabas and the other disciples on the missionary journey shake the dust off their sandals, proclaiming God's judgment. And then it's left to those who have rejected his Christ and his disciples. And they, and they proclaim this, that they are now carrying this good news. They're going to carry it on to the Gentiles. Since the Jews' official stance is this, we are unworthy of the gospel is what they're saying. We are unworthy of this Christ. We reject Him. We are unworthy of grace. And so they move on from, from Antioch and they go to Iconium and they enter the synagogue there and uh, the place where at least some people, they would recognize, of course, like I said, the authority of the Scripture and they have some allegiance to the God of Scripture, but the Jews, the Jews stir up those people and they poison their minds against the good news that was proclaimed. And then, of course, uh, the Jews, after they poison their mind and they decide, they stir up the people even further that they might kill them, that they might kill uh, Barnabas and Paul and the other missionaries. So now they flee to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia and the surrounding country. And these cities are primarily Gentile, and what we see now is that as they go into this new city, they go into a city that doesn't have a synagogue. This is a city without a synagogue. So they were a people uh, unfamiliar with Holy Scripture, unfamiliar with the God of the Scripture. And so before we pick up this study in the book of Acts, I want to ask us this question. When we think about evangelism in our world, we used to be able to assume that our neighbors had some inkling of Holy Scripture, some rudimentary understanding of the God of the Bible. We can't make that assumption. We can't make that assumption anymore. And I wondered this, and I don't have the answers for this, but I wondered this as I prayed about this this week. We've become a idolatrous nation, a godless nation, a Christless nation. And I wondered this. Do we put all the blame for that on the enemy? 
I wonder if it might be my fault. I wonder if it might be the generation before me's fault, the generation of Christians before me, who failed to boldly proclaim the gospel in their neighborhoods, in their workplaces, in their schools, so that they failed to do so, and now our neighbors know nothing. I think we, we blame some outside entity, but I think a lot of the blame has to go to Christians and really to the church, to pastors who stand up and do not deliver the word of God in the church even. They deliver, they don't deliver, they might deliver a message about Christ, but it's not the Christ of the Bible. They might deliver a message, but it's never going to challenge anybody to repentance and faith. So is that the God of the Bible? I think it isn't. But I just wonder, as we think about our evangelism, we cannot now assume that our neighbors have any background whatsoever. So we have three questions, I think, that we must be able to answer in ourselves. Know that you know that you know these things. Why do you trust the Bible? And why must our hearers trust the Bible? Who is Jesus? I think even some Christians don't even know. Not really who he is. Not, not the Jesus of the scripture. And what is the gospel? What is the good news according to the scripture? I think we must know that in ourselves and we must be able to answer it because we are in a community that is much like Lystra, a community that has given itself over to the gods of the world. They have no background in Christianity, but we used to assume that they did. We used to assume everybody knows something. But it just isn't true anymore. Well, let us pick up our study of Acts 14, looking at verses 8 through 10. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and he began walking. This section of the missionary's journey centers around the healing of a man who was crippled from birth. There's speculation that Luke relates this story with the intention of showing that Paul has the same apostolic authority as Peter. Because doesn't this remind you of the story of Peter in Acts chapter 3? Verses 1 through 8, I'm going to read it. Now Peter and John were going to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. 
But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with him, walking, leaping, and praising God. So this is Peter's witness. And here we see Paul looking upon a crippled man. What we see different in that passage, of course, is the man stands up, but he doesn't, he's not immediately praising God. He doesn't know, he doesn't know the God who worked through Paul. But what he does have is he has faith that God has given him faith to hear the words that Paul had delivered. Because notice he says, he listened to Paul speaking. These similarities in these two healings are said to be that this is Luke's way of declaring that just like Peter, uh, Paul had apostolic authority to bring the gospel to the Gentiles just as Peter had to bring it to the Jews. We don't even know exactly what it was that Paul was speaking, but we do notice that this man listened and this man was given faith. I speculate. I don't know this. I don't know what message he was giving, but I can speculate a little bit based on uh, the passage that preceded it. In verse 7, they continued to preach the gospel. So my assumption is that here Paul is speaking the truth about Christ, speaking the truth about the gospel. And Perhaps maybe it was a portion of what he preached at Antioch in Acts 13, in verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Perhaps he's delivering this message of forgiveness, this message of freedom to this man. And as I thought about this passage, I wondered like, if we thought about this, that if we are given faith, if we are given faith by God, if we listen to the Word of God, if we listen to the Word of God and we have faith, are we not in a position to be healed? This man was in a position to be healed by the power of God. He listened to the word of God spoken and God gave him faith. He was in a position to be healed. I pondered this question. If one of you is besieged by a particular sin, if, if a person is struggling in their marriage, if you're overwhelmed by looking at the world and seeing its problems, I would suggest that you position yourself just like the crippled man. Recognize first that you are in your flesh crippled, that you are without ability. Position yourself to hear the word of God preached. Pray that God would give you faith or that the faith that you already possess, God would give you in increasing measure. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, hearing the word of God concerning his Christ. I think when we position ourselves to hear the word of God preached, there is hope for our weary soul. But to what does our souls often attend to? 
Often we don't attend to hearing from the word of God. When our souls are wretched, are wrecked and stretched and our lives are a shamble and they're a mess. Do we listen to the word of God or do we listen to the word of the gods of this age? Do we come to hear the word of God preached or do we listen to self? Do we exalt leisure and comfort and identity and possessions and family and entertainment and friends and sports and all of those things to the place where we go to find our rest for our weary soul? I think that if these things prevent you from prioritizing the word of God in your life, that if these things get in the way of gathering together with the saints, then they have become your God. They have become your God. And if they have become your God, I don't want you to complain to me that you are not walking in victory. Somebody who is not underneath the word of God on a regular, consistent basis coming to me and telling me I don't have victory in my life. I don't doubt that. I don't doubt that one bit. What is? What are you feeding your soul? What are you giving your allegiance and your attention to? You're giving your allegiance and your attention to self. It's just like they say, you know, you go get a self-help book. You've got an idiot instructing you. Like, you're the one with the problem. Why would you go for a self-help book? I've got a problem. I need a self-help book. That seems oxymoronic, doesn't it? Are you finding yourself in a place where healing can begin? Don't complain that you're not walking in victory that is promised in Christ Jesus if you've not placed yourself in a position to hear from him. So, here's this man. He's in a position to heal, to be healed. He's been given faith. He pays attention to the word of God as it's preached by Paul. And then he springs up to his feet. You would think, right? The crowd would say, what a miracle, right? They do. But listen to what they do. In verse 11, and when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. These were not merely just a godless people. These were a people with multiple gods. These were not a people without faith. They were people whose faith was placed in worthless things. These were people who lived in utter darkness without hope in the world because they, their hope was dis, displaced. Their faith was empty. If their local gods did not find favor with them, they were but tools for the local gods' own gratification. They attribute the healing of the lame man to the local deities having come and manifested themselves into the person of Barnabas and Paul. When they call Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes, it's likely that Luke is giving them a Greek name for understanding for his original audience, but they were likely um, other gods who were just local to that community, right? They had a god for every occasion, a god for every corner, 
Uh, but for the original hearer and reader of this word, they would get some context that these were likened to these Greek gods. So he names them their Greek equivalent. Lystra believed in the local gods that were directed by these uh, Greek gods. But notice this, they are quick to worship anyone. They are quick to worship anything. Very quick. Here, this man, he gets up and he walks. Ah, you said it? God must be, you must be a God. You have come down to us. We will worship you, right? They attribute uh, this favor to some random deity. They prepare to worship Barnabas and Paul. So they gather oxen and, and they adorn them with garland. This was their practice, Right? They would get an ox and they would adorn it with garlands and bring it to the place of sacrifice. And here they are about to do this unto Barnabas and unto Paul. Well, what is Paul's and Barnabas's response to this adoration, this false? Look, notice, look what they, they attribute it to. They attribute it to these men, Right? When it was God who did that work in healing that man, they attributed that work to men. And Barnabas and Saul are filled with indignation. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard it, they tore their garments and they rushed into the crowd. They're filled with indignation. The only authorized worship is to the God of Holy Scripture. This is kind of what they're saying as they come out there. The only worship that is worthy to be ascribed to any God is the God of Holy Scripture. They see this, it's blasphemous to them. They're enraged at this. This is what is known as strange fire. They bring strange fire in wanting to come and worship them. They bring something foreign, something that's blasphemous. If you would turn with me to Leviticus chapter 9. Yeah, is it? It's not often in a New Testament church that you hear the book of Leviticus read, but... Uh, I want to look at Leviticus 9, uh, 22 uh, to 24. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. They shouted and they fell on their faces. This is what authorized worship looks like. Worship that is authorized by God and by the Holy Scripture looks like this. Looks like men humbled before holy God falling on their face as they bring the worship that is prescribed by Him earlier in that passage. They bring it as it's prescribed. And God consumes their worship. God consumes their worship. What is strange about the way we do worship sometimes as a Christian church? We come to be consumers of worship, right? If the styling is not the style I like, I'll go somewhere else. 
If it's not, if the musicality is not up to some standard I've set for myself, then I'll move on. Well, we become consumers of worship, but it is God who is the consumer of worship. We come to bring it according to the way he prescribes it. And the way he prescribes it, we are those who, when they see the Lord consume our worship, what do they do? They fall on their faces before God. Now, we can look at chapter 10 of Leviticus and see worship that is not in accordance with the authority of Scripture. Now Nabad and, Ab and Abayu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which ha he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said among those who are near me. I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. I will be sanctified, I will be glorified, I will be set apart. Do you want God to consume your worship? Do you want to bring something that is pleasing to Him? That when we, when we, when we leave Sunday morning, right? One of the questions that we often might even ask ourselves or ask our fellow church members is, what did you get out of that this morning? I think the question we ought to ask is, was God consumed by my worship? Was he pleased with what I brought to him? Was he pleased with the offering I made of my heart? Did I give him all? Did I give him praise? That ought to be our question. That's the kind of worship that God loves, that God enjoys. That is worship that is worthy of him. That is worship that is according to the Holy Scripture. We must worship God in accordance with his Holy Scripture. Anything else is strange fire. We must worship God according to who he is. And who he is has been given to us in Holy Scripture. Sometimes in the American church, we can be guilty of bringing strange fire before the Lord. We bring strange fire when our musical choices are self-stylized, when the lyrics of the songs we sing are man-exalting, songs where they're inconsistent with the teaching of Scripture, songs in which sometimes I even heard one on the way this morning, and I won't disparage them, but I heard this song, and they're singing Jesus, 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 and all of this stuff. And I, in, in the way that they sang the song and the way they described him, you could take his name out of it and put a guy's name in there or a girl's name in there. Like Jesus is my boyfriend music, right? That's not Christ honoring. It's not God honoring. It's not according to what the scripture says. It's not who God is. These things are strange. And sometimes we bring those strange things and we put them in the church. Some of those songs are worthy to sing in your car. They're just not worthy to sing in church. They're not worship songs. Because they're about us. They're all about us. Worship is about Him. And the songs ought to be sung unto Him, right? We lift up 
songs unto him. A lot of times we, in the American church, the songs and the choices that we make, sometimes we sing them unto ourselves. We sing them about ourselves. I mean, God's in there, right? It's all about how good he is to us and how, how we are blessed by him and, you know, how we've been made new. We are these things. We are this. You are this. You know, I am this. I just wonder who's getting honored. I wonder who's getting honored. He's there. There's some semblance of honor, but the songs are sung to us. They're not sung to him. We need to lift up songs that lift him up. Songs that are not strange fire. Sometimes we're guilty of bringing strange fire when the preaching of God's word is either non-existent in the gathering or it has been relegated to second or third place. When the pulpit's not in the center of the church, right? It's somewhere off to the back and off to the side because the Word of God is not central. And if we run out of time for all the things that we do, we can just not preach the Word at all. I had a friend of mine who was a former pastor, retired and he was, you know, describing to me a worship service in which he led it. And he's describing me this whole service. And he said, you know, Jeff, we got so busy worshiping, we never even opened our Bible. And he said it proudly. He said it proudly. We never even opened our Bibles. Everybody was crying and weeping. We were celebrating, and we never even opened our Bible. I had to take a breath, of course. And I said, was that a Christian worship service? Well, yeah. I don't know. Because the Word of God should have been the center of that. should have been first. We, God speaks and we respond. God's word should have been first, but no, it was second place. What do we need in, in the churches in America today? We need uh, men who will stand in the pulpit and insist that the preaching of God's word is center. We must insist that we worship the God of the word. We preach the word about our God and we insist that we worship the God of the word. We need men like Barnabas and Saul. We need men who will preach Christ according to the Scripture, not a Christ that is of their own making. Not a Christ that is according to the Pope. Not a Christ that is according to some church tradition. But the Christ of the Holy Scripture. We need men who will unashamedly get rid of all the cultural appropriation and stand behind the pulpit, stand behind it like a man, We'll lift up the Word of God and just let it fly. We'll just say what it says. We need Paul and Barnabas. We need those who are so indignant at this false worship that is coming at them and they rush at them. Like, don't you dare do that! That is blasphemous. They tear their clothes, right? They rend their clothes like, don't you dare do that! Don't you dare do that. Do you realize that you are reaping like you are heaping like tons of harm upon yourself? 
Don't you dare do that. So they rush at them. And they cry out, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And even with these words, they could not scarcely restrain themselves from offering sacrifices to them. Even with these words. This speech is reminiscent of what Paul will later preach at Mars Hill. Except there he does it in a, in a much more sophisticated way. Because he's speaking to a much more sophisticated audience, right? But it's much the same as the speech he gives here. There he says, I perceive that you are religious. And you don't even know what you worship. But I bring you the God of the Bible. The one who you say you don't know, I know him. I bring you the one that is known and knowable. Right? I bring you the God of the Bible, the one who's plainly revealed to you in nature. Nature says this is who he is. And you know this. You know his goodness. He has given you his goodness. You know who this is. And he would further want to say this, I think, that you can know this God who's revealed in nature according to the Spirit. You can know the God of the Holy Scripture. He witnessed to you who he is according to the grace that he extends to all of his creatures. Paul says, that leaves you without excuse. He says later, doesn't he? In Romans 1, this made me think immediately of Romans 1. Because he's talking about the grace that God has given. He's given you rains. He's given you seasons. He's given you fruit, right? He's given you these benefits of his grace. It's plain to you that this, this, this local deity did not give you those things. It was the God of the Bible, the one that I just proclaimed to you. I declare to you a revelation from the Scripture. A revelation from the scripture that says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything, which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. I believe it's reminiscent of what he's speaking, right? That you can be free. Forgiveness of sin can be had. And yet, you reject it and want to worship, worship us. You want to worship the creature rather than the creator. So made me think of Romans 1. I'm going to turn there. Romans 1, beginning in verse 18. Pretty familiar passage. Uh, I've heard somebody once say that um, a pastor's Bible probably ought to automatically open to Romans 1. It probably ought to just flop open there because... Uh, there's so many connections to Romans 1, 18 and beyond. I'm going to read 18 through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, 
have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, and they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So this, of course, as we see in here, they're worshiping the creature rather than the creator, right? Paul preaches forth the word of God and in the power of the Holy Spirit and in some apostolic authority says, get up and walk your faith. It was the man's faith in God, right? He has faith in God and it's God who worked healing. Get up and walk and the guy gets up. And rather than worship the God who did it, they worship the man who said it. They worship the creature rather than the creator. The truth about God, according to the scriptures, is that he is the creator. And as such, the creator is perfect and he is holy and in him no evil dwells. Therefore, he is the judge of all humankind. This plan of uh, is plain, right? This plan is plain. It is plain in all of creation. It is by grace that all of this is given to mankind to see clearly that the God of creation is the God of the universe, that he is the God who is worthy of praise and he is worthy of being the right judge. He is the right God. Uh, God. But who, you, who are you then? This passage also tells us in Romans 1.18, who are you without Christ according to the scripture? We are those who by our own unrighteousness suppress the truth about God. We are those who by our own unrighteousness have our hearts darkened foolishly. We are those who worship vain things. We are those who worship ourself, worship position, worship identity, worship leisure, worship entertainment. We worship whatever our little idols in our dark heart will invent. It will invent anything that will get our allegiance, our time, our energy, our money. But God sent His Son, Jesus Christ. This Jesus fulfilled the requirement for the righteous God of the Scripture commands. Whatever it is that the Scriptures have instructed, Christ fulfilled it. He willingly suffered for your failure and my failure to remain obedient unto death. He willingly died for our cosmic treason against God. Isn't this scene in Acts? It is treason. It is cosmic treason. It's treason on a huge scale to attribute the work of God to these mere men. To attribute the work of God to some lowercase God. Isn't it cosmic treason in us when we elevate self above God? When we elevate entertainment above God? When we elevate even our own families above God? When we elevate our marriage above God? We have all kinds of little gods that we can elevate. But it is treason against holy God. 
But God sent his son for our treason. God sent his son who was faithful. And God raised him from the dead. And what is proclaimed to us today is that through Jesus Christ, God offers and has given us forgiveness. If you don't know that forgiveness today, I'm asking you, will you receive the gift of faith? It's free to you, but it costs Christ everything. Upon faith, will you repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ? If it is yes, you've been appointed to eternal life. If it's no, or it's not yet, I worry for you. I have deep concern for you. If it's no or not yet. Because as the truth was presented to these folks, and they could scarcely even keep them from worshiping them still, what did it mean for them? It means that the wrath of God and the judgment of God still rests upon them. That's a big concern. So I would say to you, if you want to say no to God and you want to say yet to God that one day I will repent and believe, one day I will surrender, one day I will make him Lord of Lords. Well, you can't make him Lord of Lords because he is. But one day I will confess that truth that he is Lord of Lords. But I'm not going to do it today. I would just say to you, don't die. Don't you dare die today. Don't die right now. Because the wrath of God remains upon you. The judgment of God remains upon you. And it's, it's not that God is waiting to pounce upon you. He made you the offer. And you rejected it. So guess what you would get? Exactly what you deserve. Exactly what you deserve. God is not mean. You just get what you deserve. And I praise God that I didn't get what I deserve. I got mercy and grace and compassion in Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful I didn't get what I deserved. Because I deserved death. I deserved eternal punishment. That's what I deserve. We all do, right? 